0: Why should a child be afraid to go to school? It was almost like catnip for for TV producers. They could just go to Boston or these other cities, put their cameras on white protesters. And that became the image that got seared in the minds of American viewers. The black community
1: was furious that it um, was a coordinated effort to disenfranchise them and sort of steal back political power. There was definitely resentment and so is, is that racist? The real story is overshadowed by sort of a mythical oversimplification.
0: This is Disintegration, a podcast looking back at one of the most painful chapters in Boston's history, the desegregation of Boston public schools in the 1970s. I'm Jesse Remedios.
1: And I'm Valerie Wences. We'll also take a look at where Boston is today. How much has the city changed in the past five decades? Or does it deserve its reputation as one of the most racist cities in America?
0: Nearly 50 years after busing started, how integrated are the Boston schools really? It's sort of a mixed bag, with some places doing better than others.
1: In this episode, we'll look at the changing demographics of the city. Our colleague Rachel Gottlieb talks to three Boston teachers about life in the classrooms today.
2: Court-mandated busing policies for Boston public schools ended officially in 1988. In the nearly 35 years since, a lot has changed for the city. Like other American cities, many neighborhoods in Boston have gentrified, causing the cost of living to skyrocket, and several types of demographics, including race, to shift dramatically in many of those neighborhoods. The school system itself has changed too, being no stranger to the charter and school choice craze that took over lots of urban school districts in the early 2010s. As of 2019, Boston as a whole was roughly 52% white, but according to a December 2019 report released by the school system, just 14% of students in the system are. Black and Latinx students make up much larger chunks of the student population, and are also more representative of what the city's population looks like overall. In this episode, I want to introduce you to three teachers who work in the schools today, and have some experience with their past too, to tell us a little more about how segregation and diversity feel in the schools today, though in a way that data and numbers might not be able to.
3: People I'd met with in Southie were experienced teachers who had been through a lot and had learned from it. And what I saw when I went to Orchard Gardens was no Black teachers Almost, almost no Black teachers at Orchard Gardens.
2: That's Suzanne McGlone. She goes by Susie. Susie's been teaching in Boston since the early 90s. She's talking about the different experiences she had working between the former Patrick Gavin Middle School in South Boston, before it became Up Academy Charter School in 2012, and Orchard Gardens Community School in Roxbury. The
3: foundation with which Orchard Gardens had been built through the community because it was supposed to be you know, a school built in Roxbury. It was a very much trying to assimilate its students into being white acting.
2: Susie worked at what she called the Gavin between 1999 and 2008 or 2009. She couldn't remember which one. While the Gavin wasn't super racially diverse while she was there... She doesn't remember it being totally homogenous either. What she does remember is a diverse group of teachers, including Black teachers, who had been at the school since the 1980s. When she left the Gavin to teach at the predominantly Black Orchard Gardens, she found a world of difference.
3: You know, coming from the Gavin, which was in South Boston, the Gavin, we had
2: Black teachers with
3: experience. We had younger Black teachers. So I was surprised when I went from Southie To Roxbury, and most of the teachers in Roxbury were now these white, younger teachers who had no connection to the community. What Boston has done the last several years, they will say that they are working on creating a diverse workforce. But actually, what I witnessed the principal, who is not there anymore, she pushed out Black teachers every year that I worked at Orchard Gardens, that she was a principal there. She
2: probably did it, people would say, unconsciously. Susie said at Orchard Gardens, where she left in 2021 to teach at a different school in Jamaica Plain, there was a lot of talk about eradicating and ending racism at the school and reading books about how to do so. But when it came to actually doing the work, it never seemed to get done. The funny
3: and interesting thing is, is that there was a lot more real and authentic communication between the races in South Boston at the Gavin than what I ever
2: saw at Orchard Gardens. She mentioned that racial representation at Orchard Gardens was also a problem. The vast majority of students at the school are black. She recalled one stretch of time in which of the 1000 or so students in the school, two were white. That year on the school's small governing board, two parents were also white you may be able to tell why that's a little unbalanced. She said for several years, this meant lots of Black parents from the school did not feel their voices were heard from at all. And the principal, for her part, let go of Black teachers who Susie said were extremely talented. It is interesting to
3: think about how the school in Southie didn't have that, I don't know if people call it the new brand of racism, because it's not new, but it's like another brand of racism, which I think is in a lot of ways, a lot worse.
2: It's worth mentioning too how much South Boston has changed even since Susie stopped working there a little over 10 years ago. Like I mentioned before, the Gavin is now a charter school. The neighborhood itself these days has a reputation as one of the most rapidly gentrified and still gentrifying in the city. According to a 2017 report from Boston's Planning and Development Agency, The percentage of South Boston residents with a bachelor's degree rose from 28% in 2000 to 56% by 2015. Also in 2015, the median household income in Southie was just about $77,000. The white population dropped, but remains high at 78% of the neighborhood share. But still. A handful of more diverse schools in Boston do exist today. How do they get through the impact that busing and segregation may have left?
0: I mean, I think the impact and the legacy is really quite visible.
2: That's Jose Valenzuela, a history teacher at Roxbury's Boston Latin Academy and a former BPS student himself. That impact and legacy he's talking about is the one the bussing crisis left on
0: the schools. I don't think there's a single school that's untouched by that legacy. Even thinking about the school I teach at, at Boston Latin Academy, it was also desegregated in the 1970s. It used to be an all-girls school. And the state recognized that that was something that should not probably be a part of our public schools.
2: Important note before we keep going. Jose does not teach at Boston Latin School. Boston Latin Academy is another one of Boston's exam schools. Though both prestigious public schools draw from neighborhoods all over the city, they are not the same place, and they are not officially affiliated with each other. BLA, like BLS, is a grade 7 through 12 school. According to the school's website, No racial group makes up more than 30% of the school's student body. It is one of the most racially diverse schools in Massachusetts.
0: A lot of friend groups do end up looking pretty diverse. I would say there are very prevalent pockets of segregation, whether you're talking about in the cafeteria or in friend groups. But I think those are generally the exceptions and not the rule when you're kind of looking across the school. The The other factor, maybe doesn't get really noticed as much or publicized is sort of the way in which, you know, because of the group of students we attract, the subcultures of students that kind of span ethnic or racial lines are pretty notable.
2: He said the friendships that he's witnessed form at BLA oftentimes have more to do with kids' interests in things that lots of kids are interested in these days, like K-pop and comic books. He encourages his students to visit their friends' neighborhoods, especially if they look different from their own.
0: I think in terms of how students interact with each other, I mean, it is, again, it's really unique. Most students have never been in a school setting like that because the rest of our district is quite segregated.
2: He added that attending BLA is often the first chance many students have to interact with people who are not from their neighborhood and then visit their friends in those neighborhoods, too which, you know, are also still very segregated for the most part. Jose himself grew up in Boston's Forest Hills neighborhood in the 90s and graduated from Boston Latin School. Yes, the other one. He said it was experiences like going to his friends' different neighborhoods and ethnic enclaves in places from East Boston to Dorchester to West Roxbury, and yes, even Southie, he said, that allowed him to see his city through more lenses than his own.
0: Places that like I had really never been before were suddenly a little more welcoming because I knew people from those places and I could kind of relate a little bit more.
2: Jose tries to encourage his students to engage in similar experiences with their friends. He said that largely, they do. He even said that students who graduate and come back to visit during their freshman year of college Tell him how jarred they are by how segregated or homogenous their college campuses are, especially the white students. For his part as a student, Jose attended a public elementary school with a bilingual program when he was growing up in Forest Hills. He said the school insisted that his parents place him in an English dominant classroom. They did. And he was one of the only Latino kids in that class.
0: And it was sort of very jarring and noticeable. It's like, you know, except for me as like some sort of example, most of the other kids who were Dominican in my school were in a totally different group of classes.
2: He thinks this was an early introduction as to how race in BPS operates in real time.
0: You know, that made it really hard to be a student and feel like all aspects of who I was was being welcomed or at least sort of like received as a contributing part of what it meant to be a student. Like those were things that I could be celebrated for or celebrated by.
2: As for his time at Latin school, he said there were some safe spaces, like affinity groups and clubs, where the community he spoke of earlier could form. But the school also had some major issues. They'd sweep things under the rug, like expulsions for fighting, sexual assault allegations, and suicides. And weirdly, it was largely these negative experiences that bonded students from the past and the present across racial lines.
0: Like I had the chance to talk to an alum who was a a Jewish student in the 1940s, and it's like the same thing. (laughs) I'm like, oh, wow, that sounds like a remarkably similar to my experience as like a Dominican kid in this school.
2: His experiences at BLS are some of the things that eventually brought him to BLA. When he was hired on as a teacher there, he said he made it explicitly clear to the administration that he did not want his students to go through the same negative experiences that he did. Building community among his students in a positive way has been a key aspect of his teaching. So between the teachers and students, what could the key be to making a school's environment less racist? Is it building community above all else? That's what I would say, yes. That's Lisa Carey, a fifth grade teacher at the Neighborhood House Charter School in Dorchester. I actually met Lisa when we both worked in elementary school classrooms in New Hampshire as part of AmeriCorps.
3: We spend a bunch of the first two weeks not even doing academics like a whole middle school kind of thing of this is what it means to be like a middle school scholar
2: at NHCS rather than being like this is what it means to be like in the science classroom, this is what it means to be like in the ELA room. Like we don't really we like touch upon that, but it's more of like as a whole, you like you are a part of this community. This is how you are going to make our community better, not worse. Lisa said that her school is predominantly black, though there are a decent amount of Latinx and Asian students too. She said the kids don't self-segregate much from what she's observed. Having worked in other schools before, she thinks that the school's emphasis on community building is what keeps the students from doing so for the most part. And they come from all different parts of the city, too, just like Jose's students do. The school prides itself on being... A a big community of, like, lower school, middle school, high school teachers, educators slash staff, which I think then also does trickle down. I've never worked in a place that's cared so much about being a community. And Lisa also said that goes back to the teaching environment. While she said the elementary school teachers are largely white women, which reflects national patterns, by the way, the middle and the upper schools are much more diverse in terms of the genders and races of the staff. And Lisa thinks the school actively practices anti-racism and being an anti-racist organization with frequent and encouraged dialogue among the staff about any racism they see or experience. It's things like this that make the school's success in community building possible. A 2018 analysis by the Boston Globe found that roughly 60% of Boston schools were, quote, intensely segregated, or that 90% or above of those student bodies were students of color. The report also found that some schools in white neighborhoods were quickly, well, becoming whiter. Some in South Boston and Charlestown are notable examples. Boston Latin Academy, and Boston Latin School, two schools that are notably diverse, are also two of the most academically prestigious schools in the country. Admission to each school is very competitive and desired among parents across the city. It may then come as no surprise that these schools are outliers. But overall, from what these teachers told us, it seems success exists in small pockets because of the communities and individuals who are committed to implementing it.
0: That episode was produced by our colleague, Rachel Gottlieb. On the next episode of Disintegration, we'll learn more about the wealth gap between Black and white Bostonians.
1: Disintegration is a production of Podcasting 101 at Boston University's College of Communication. The music in this episode was provided by Alien Boy Music via the Free Music Archive. The song is called Windy Dazed Days. I'm Valerie Wences.
0: And I'm Jesse Remedios.
1: Thanks for listening.